Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Hope you're getting through the week. As always, focusing on tons of self-care, a little bit of joy and pleasure, lots of rest, <laughs> making the best with what's going on. Hope you all have uh, found a way to get vaccinated. If not, waiting, waiting your turn in line. Uh, seeing more and more people in New York City dropped an app that's going to have the uh, COVID passport, as they say, the vaccination passport. It'll be for people to get entry into certain spaces, proving that they've been vaccinated. Good old governor down in uh, Florida is losing his mind about it, though. Uh, very upset, very disturbed, very frustrated. Uh, but, you know, again, they're always doing their own thing. I don't I don't know what he what it is he's wanting. Numbers are rising. People are dying. He lifts the mask order full capacity everywhere. Like, what is his game plan? I, I have no sense of that. It's quite sociopathic. When you put business values, money or whatever before the lives of people, that's sociopathic. Narcissist at least. Yikes. Yikes. Anyway, so that's happening. A um, couple bunch of other stuff. Uh, you know, again, I'm always thoughtful about what we talk about. Nisi Nash says she had never dated a woman before her current partner. I don't know if y'all know this. We talked about this, but she got married to a woman. First time she's been in a same-sex relationship. Love that. It's an example of how our sexuality is always changing. Right Later in life, we can step into a new phase for whatever reason. Had not considered it, hadn't met the right person. Yeah, sometimes maybe you're like 99% hetero, 1% gay. You met the right person. You're like, there, I'm interested. Um, that can happen. Sexuality is quite fluid. And we're, we get a little overconfident and think, especially as we've talked about, we think it's always gender choice, but it's bigger than that. But we get a little overconfident. And we think that it's this landing point that we achieve in you know, our teenage years and then it's just handled for us for our life. It's like, no. So props to her. She got some pushback, but um, love looking at photos of her, love looking at pictures of the wedding and also love the shock value of, of it all because it reminds us people are a little more complex than we think they are. There's more two people than we think they are. Right. But also it's a reminder just to let our sexuality be a little open-ended. Um, when, again, I don't know anything about this stuff, so bear with me, but on TikTok, I've seen some of these videos pop up. I personally think they're annoying and I don't get it, but the videos are just random people dancing. Well, one of them is this one girl, she's white who gets, has a lot of followers. Um, her name's Addison for dancing and Jimmy Fallon had her on. Seemed harmless enough until people pointed out, well, wait a second. She is actually stealing some choreography from uh, black individuals uh, who don't always get the same attention and notoriety that some of the white performers do. And a lot of people's frustrations are just that people like this girl, young white girl, get credited for dances, clothing, and other trends that they learn from someone else, excuse me, often appropriating it from black teens and black performers. 
and um, directly stolen, and that's been called out before. And so we just want to always be thoughtful about recognizing whose shoulders we are literally standing on and calling that out, either as you know, show producers or even performers, um, who your inspirations are. And that's why a lot of people will kind of reference that and call that out. Um, I know we do put some things out into the either world and that they get absorbed. Um, and there are such a thing as cultural celebration, celebrating other people's cultures, but that means giving them access, giving them support, giving them recognition. And, you know, again, not building a career, stealing someone else's um, identity or ways of being. We want to be very, very, very thoughtful about that. So, and also we have a story about a 57 year old woman who survived a brain tumor, just gave birth. She broke a state record love hearing positive news come out of dark, rough times. We always have so, we have a lot of struggle, a lot of struggle to report on. So I love when we can see um, some positive things coming out. And again, it just reminds us that age, age matters on some biological levels. Uh, socially though, it's usually just something that's a little bit constructed and we're working on not necessarily having a decline perspective on aging, that aging is not just loss and decline and fragility. It also can be a time, even like the Nishi, Nisi Nash story, it can be a time of really stepping into our truth and our authenticity and our power, and it can be very healing. And so I wanna start really challenging a lot of those ageist ideas. And, and again, it works both, both ends of the continuum where we can sometimes undermine younger individuals as though young people people don't have, as, as though young people's feelings don't matter or their thoughts aren't as important or as intelligent, um, that they can't be in love and that their, you know, pain isn't as great. And then we do that on the other end of the spectrum, you know, older individuals, we assume that they're useless. We assume that again, I said it's decline and nothing powerful or positive. And that's not always the case on either side. And we just want to be very thoughtful about holding space for, I guess, essentially it's about really holding space for truth. And then before we go, I just want to give a little reminder to the, those using the uh, dating and hookup apps. Saw another report of someone misusing those, using it to target gay individuals. So just a reminder, have that friend, have that really good friend that you can send information to. Have that good friend that knows if they receive a text from you with an address or a pin drop and someone's name or photo, that that might be someone you're going to hook up with. This is part of looking out for ourselves. We live in that kind of current culture where you don't know who you're going to see. So again, maybe meet them in public first, maybe meet them in public, lead them in public, maybe ask them to first get on FaceTime to make sure it is who they say they are. Um, let them know ahead of time. Um, I'm going to come over, but I'm going to send my pin and the information you gave me to a friend for safety. I mean, we have to look out for ourselves and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Letting someone know where you're going to be and who you're going to see. Um, that's important. Let them know as well to maybe prevent going over at all. If something was going to happen, that's bad. I just worry these apps are, are being misused to target people. So, oh my gosh, we have to worry about more than just catfishing. All right, we got to go though. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about different forms of intelligence. That's right. Uh, intelligence is a lot more than just the ability to memorize facts and state capitals. And then we're going to talk about a new trend called Cali Sober, California Sober. Yep. Thanks to Demi Lovato. That's uh, kind of in the zeitgeist. We'll be back. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. We're talking about intelligence. Different kinds of intelligence. I love this. You know, uh, we have IQ tests and uh, they measure what they measure and what they measure, we then call that intelligence. But um, it just measures what it measures. It measures certain aspects and elements. Uh, being trained in administering the IQ test and having it administered on me was really eye-opening. Um, it's very specific as to what it deems to be intelligence. And I'm gonna keep using that word because again, it's structured to assess 
but yet it, it doesn't assess every, every kind of intelligence that we have. And we're going to break down what some of those are, but I want to remind everyone that, you know, IQ test has a really historically racist, um, history. That's why I call it a historical <laughs> double use of that word, but, uh, it was rooted very much and born out of eugenics. And that was this idea to create a, a master race where we wanted everyone to be white. We wanted everyone to be able-bodied. Um, there was a time when people that had lower levels of intelligence or people that were disabled were um, made unable to give birth and produce and have children. Yep, we sterilized them. We institutionalized them. We saw them as weakening the race to allow their genes to continue to be passed along. And the IQ tests were born out of that. The person who invented the IQ test was a eugenicist. He was someone who wanted to make the world only, quote unquote, strong, robust, resilient, healthy people. And um, now, thank, thank God, based on the you know disability rights movement and um, the neurodiversity movement, all these movements are reminding us that people are born different, different abilities, different brains, and that one is not better than the other. Some of this, some people are made disabled due to the way the world is structured and having lack of access and lack of support, lack of accommodation. And we now know that there's no right brain to have. Neurodiversity tells us that every every brain has deficits and strengths, right? And some of the people that have some of the historically disordered brains as we diagnose them have assets. We t that's also born out of the autistic rights movement where they're saying, we aren't bad or broken. We do not need fixing or curing. We are different. We communicate differently. Um, stimming and all these behaviors that throw people off, lack of eye contact are ways that we preserve ourselves, um, ways that we expel energy, ways that we soothe and cope, and they're no better, they're just different. They're no worse, I mean, they're just different. And so it's important for us to always look at what, what we're deeming to be our definition of intelligence or success. Um, even school, school really focuses on memorization and the ability to regurgitate memorization. It really doesn't work on critical thinking. It doesn't really work on uh, translating the material to other ways of it being used or applied. It's very much memorize these facts and the test will ask you these facts back. And, and do you have them you know, accessible? Which is funny because now on our phones we can Google half the things that you're being forced to memorize. Wouldn't it be better if we learned critical thinking and ways to apply these skill sets? Also, sticking on my rant about school, um, school is very individualized, but most jobs and careers are about teamwork and working cooperatively. But school every now and then throws maybe a, a group project at you, but otherwise you're on your own against everyone else. And the world does not always work that way. But back to my bigger point, which is there's many different forms of intelligences and school and IQ tests and standardized testing often only focus on a few. Um, and again, that really leaves out all the strengths and benefits of other ways of being, other ways of thinking. So um, <clears throat> what are some of the different intelligences? And again, as I look at these, I find this very soothing. And, I, and all the work I provide is about giving people rights, um, empowering, liberating, right? Deconstructing. And so that's what this really seeks to do. So, okay, other kinds of intelligences. Well, there's musical intelligence. That is valuable and meaningful as evidenced by the amount of love, care, and attention we put into our musical artists that we're fans of, et cetera, et cetera. It adds an element 
to the world. I was watching a movie yesterday and I was noticing how without music that's added to film, films aren't as good and they're not as powerful. And that music is very defining. Music's also part of mental health. We talk about how it can lift us up. It can drop us down in and deeper. I use uh, a, a daily form of musical therapy where I use it as a form of self-care. I've talked about this. I put on my headphones, turn off the lights, and I just sit there and listen to music. But the ability to create music and to work with music is a level of intelligence. It's just not one that we've traditionally really seen as an intelligence, but yet value it highly in our world, again, as evidenced by the celebritum that comes with musical artists. Um, also existential, philosophical intelligence. Again, the ability to be a critical thinker. Um, interpersonal intelligence right? That, that usually falls under emotional intelligence. Um, what's more important than that? And most of us are lacking in that, right? Sensing other people's feelings, knowing good communication skills and conflict resolution skills. What, what doesn't necessitate those skills? Every, everything we do, our, our personal lives, our professional lives, our, our schooling, very important. Um, linguistic uh, intelligence, right? The ability to utilize vocabulary and grammar and to express yourself. Think about the beauty and power of that. And then there's other forms like naturalist, understanding and, and participating in the world, working with that. Um, we have mathematical intelligences, right? Quantifying, hypothesizing, statistical analysis. I mean, that's one I definitely do not have. Um, what else do we have? We have spatial. So my point being is just there's so many broad forms of intelligence we want to just broaden outside of because there's nature smart, there's being sound smart, there's being life smart, people smart, body smart, word smart, picture smart. These are all really valuable ways of moving through the world. But again, we tend to break everything down into what, we, what we've determined to be intelligence. Do you know the capital of all the cities? Do you know basic multiplication? You know what I mean? Like reasonable and important, but not yet, not necessarily the most applicable. So again, just normalizing all these other ways of being and other ways that people participate in the world. All right, when we come back, we're gonna be talking about a new term that I've heard slung around with some uh, celebrities out there called Cali sober. Yep, California sober. What does that mean and uh, what can we all learn from that? When we come back, we're gonna talk about that and then we'll be sliding into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it into our Loveline IG page. We wanna hear from you. And uh, we'll be back. You're listening to the new Loveline on Channel Q and Odyssey. You're listening to Loveline on the new Channel Q and on the new Audacity. California sober. Oh, California. What are you wild, wild liberals doing over there on that coast of the country? So funny. I was at a, um, a brunch. This was like two years ago with uh, my fiance and we were down in my, I know I'm, we're no longer together. So maybe it was about two and a half years ago. Anywho, I was engaged at that time and we were down South having brunch, uh, way deep, deep South, deep Texas. And I uh, went to brunch and um, uh, a bunch of family friends were with us and they were these really sweet elderly Southern women, loud as all out. And uh, when, when it came up that we lived in California, I was laughing because they were laughing and they were dead serious. They're like, we don't know what y'all are doing out there. Uh, they were like, y'all are so liberal. It was just funny to hear how they see us because I don't see us as anything, right? We just are how we are. But uh, a lot of the country thinks we're, we're wacky, wacky liberals over there in California. All, all we're trying to do is just live honest lives. Um, 
But California sober, it's it's kind of a little bit of a trend, and and it's a term you might hear getting slung around. A couple celebrities have referenced it. Um, um, Demi Lovato is one of those. You know, she historically has talked about her drug and alcohol issues, which are quite extensive. And she said now she's like California sober, which means she lays off the hard drugs and the alcohol, but smokes weed. And uh, for a lot of people, that's the definition of sobriety, which is the bigger topic I want to bring up, which is everyone's sobriety is going to look different. The goal isn't to have the same definition as everyone else. The goal is mental health. The goal is to have a healthy life. And some people can drink alcohol appropriately, and they need to avoid certain drugs. Other people can uh, just smoke weed appropriately and need to uh, leave themselves away from harder drugs or alcohol use. It's different. Um, it's not the same for everyone. We used to believe that, you know, if you have an issue with one, you're going to have an issue with everything. It just doesn't work that way because that would be to say, you know, if you have an issue with drugs and alcohol, well, then you're going to have an issue with food and, and exercise. And it's, it, you know, it, we have the ability to have different relationships to different substances and different forms of coping. And just because you struggle in one area doesn't mean you struggle in all of them. And there's not always a distinction. And for some people, there is. Some people, yeah, they need to really pay attention to their relationship to food and exercise and shopping and playing video games and drugs and alcohol. And other people, it's very specific and targeted due to trauma, due to genetics, due to a social world that they live in. But it's really important for everyone to have their own definition. And I come from a harm reduction model, which is the goal is to live a healthy life. And however we can do that, we're gonna do that. And harm reduction means some people, they're not gonna give up drinking at all or hard drug use. They're gonna use less or less often, or they're gonna use safer. Right, And that's why we're trying to legalize uh, drug possession and drug use so that people can get the help they need versus making it so black and white as in if you're found with drugs, you go to jail and you get no treatment, you get no therapy, you're not able to really work on resolving the issue. And also we know historically that the war on drugs targeted uh, people of color, black people specifically, and they're also the highest rate of people that are incarcerated. And the prison system is very violent, especially for trans and people um, from the LGBTQIA community. So we're trying to just get people help and transformation, but bigger than that, again, everyone's definition of sobriety is gonna be different. And that doesn't mean that they're more or less sober. It means they're living honestly, you know? And that's very confusing. And we know Drew Barrymore historically had a drug and alcohol issue. Now she, now she drinks. Um, Demi Lovato still smokes weed, California sober. It's just being more honest and fluid. Um, kind of like sexuality. Not everyone's all gay or all straight. A lot of people are a little more fluid. 90-10, 50-50, 60-40. You know, just being honest with where you're at. We all have different coping mechanisms. We want to choose ones that enhance our lives, maybe at least are neutral. Anything that's having a negative impact on us, we definitely want to change our relationship to it, right? Because um, that's not the point. Coping mechanisms help us get through. They shouldn't make our life worse or harder. Self-care, importantly, is always something that enhances and makes our life better. It's care for self. It's saying no. It's setting boundaries. It's turning your phone off. It's being not available. It's taking vacation. It's taking naps. That's what self-care is really about is looking out for yourself and what you need and honestly saying, I don't need to work myself to death. I don't need to be working hard to feel of worth and value. I need to be taking care of myself. Let's glamorize that. And sobriety is the same way. We used to have these old school, really hardline definitions that you can't be using any drugs or alcohol. Uh, some people believe you can't be on any pharmacological you know, AIDS, any kind of, you know, um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety. Some people believe you can't be using steroids, but yet you can go to a meeting and see people chain smoking, <clears throat> you know, using food as coping, eating, drinking way more coffee than they should. And somehow that was okay. And people started to realize, well, wait a minute, you know, mental health is about looking at your relationship to everything. 
and, and keeping what has a positive or neutral impact on you and trying to reorient and decrease the negative impact of anything that's negatively impacting you. It doesn't always mean you have to get rid of it. Sometimes it's about using it differently. Sometimes it's about using it less, less quantity or not as frequently. And that's really what the work is about. <clears throat> not purity, not perfection. We're not, that's not what we're, that's not what we're going for. And so I work with some clients that still do participate in things like AA and the 12 step programs, which are very hardlined for how they, de you know, determine sobriety, but they still do maybe drink, but stay away from, you know, other hard drugs, or they smoke weed, but don't drink and use drugs. And they still participate um, because that's a resource for them. And so I support people getting the needs, their needs met based on whatever that is. You know, it's not always gonna look the same for everyone. I think that's what I'm trying to always drive home to everyone. Everyone needs different accommodations. We have this thing called psychology and everyone's is different. And we have to meet people where they're at, not squeeze people into definitions and institutions, right? Because then what are we doing? Um, all right, coming up next, we're going to slide into those DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. Welcome back, and uh, guess what, y'all? It's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Tonight's DM says, hey, Dr. Chris, been with my husband for three years. He has one son with his ex. Last weekend, he told me he was going to go back to his parents' house in Chicago, but since it's his weekend with their son, he asked me to babysit because he can't leave the state. I guess he can't leave the state with the child is what you mean. I guess I've been feeling more and more upset because he continually treats me like a babysitter. But he is my, the child is my stepson. I'm his wife, but I'm not a babysitter. I brought it up to him once before, but he said he doesn't mean anything by it, but he hasn't stopped and it's getting more and more, it's getting more and more annoying to me. Am I wrong for not wanting to be called that? Oh, wait, am I wrong for not wanting to be called that? He calls you the babysitter? Oh, well then just tell him to not call you the babysitter. Is that, is that, is that really your question? I wouldn't want to be called a babysitter. It just really kind of downplays the fact that it's your stepson. So yes, you inherently are a caregiver to this individual. So I'm glad you're willing to step into that role. Um, yeah, just tell him not to call you that. I thought this story was going somewhere else, but am I wrong for not wanting to be called that? No, tell him to stop it. Case closed, prom soft. All right, we got a, uh, another DM. This one says, dear Dr. Chris, I have two kids by the same baby daddy. One is 14, one is 11. We've been broken up for years and his family isn't really a part of their lives. Recently, my 14 year old is asking why I don't have a boyfriend, but to be honest, I'm bi and I don't know how to tell them. I'm not dating anyone and have them for a while. I'm in fear of what's going to happen. Well, you should tell them immediately that you're bi. There's nothing wrong with being bisexual. There's nothing wrong with being gay. There's nothing wrong with being straight. There's nothing wrong with being trans. These are things that are real. These are things that are healthy. And we don't need to protect people from these things. No one's going to be harmed by acknowledging or learning about these things existing in the world. We should tell children that these things exist in the world from birth. Why? Because they're going to go to school and they're going to be in the world and they're going to meet trans people and they're going to meet gay people. And there's, there should be no shame around these things. We should be talking very openly about these things. Children's books that you read to your kids from birth. They should be stories about people having a mom and a dad, one mom, one dad. Two dads, two moms, uh, being raised by other caregivers, by friends, by grandparents. That's how the world works. That's what education is about, teaching them what is in the world and how to encounter it with confidence, right? And to know the right terminology and to understand the diversity of the world. So tell them immediately. 
Unless you have some biphobia or homophobia to work through, in which case do that first because they're going to have questions and they might not understand. You're going to have to explain. And so make sure you've done the work for you to understand and have confidence about your own identity. But if that's intact and that's in place, time to tell them. And there's nothing psychologically destructive about sharing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. To send children to school and out into the world and not know how to encounter all the diverse people they're going to meet, setting them up for failure. These days, people are coming out as gay and trans and all sorts of different creative, healthy, diverse ways of being from early ages. And I'm thankful for that. People are being able to live their truth at younger ages. And so your children need to be able to form relationships with those people. Um, to keep it quiet is actually a sign of shame, right? And it's also to imply that there's something wrong about it. Don't do that to you. Don't do that to them. You're also preventing them from really understanding who you are. And so they're having a false relationship with you based on the fantasy of who they think you are that you're maintaining, you know? So don't do that. Honestly, we don't need to do that anymore. Um, they, they, they live in the world. They're 14 and 11. They're aware that these things exist and it'll help them to have more empathy to understand that their parent is also a part of the uh, LGBTQIA spectrum. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. All right, coming up next, we're going to be talking about how to deal with differing sexual desire. This is one of the top issues that comes into my office. I wish it was something that was explored more between couples before getting too serious, but alas, not always. So we're going to talk about perspectives on that, ways to cope with that, and uh, don't panic. And then we're going to be talking about a little bit of grief and loss. DMs always open. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page in the DMs. It's always confidential, always anonymous. And um, yeah, we want to hear from you. And if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, you can do so by going to wearechannelq.com, scrolling down, clicking on my face, and uh, check out past episodes. You can binge listen, post them, share them, all sorts of stuff. So uh, stick around. More sex talk on its way. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about dealing with different sexual desire. I know it's, uh, it's among the top couples issues, um, which scares me where there's marital and couples therapists that aren't really trained in sexology or sex therapy and don't know how to work with this or even ignore it and say it's just about communication. Well, it's a lot, about a lot more than that. Um, I want to start off by just saying couples go through phases. Uh, and, and what that means is how, how you're... I mean, how do I want to say this? How, how your sexuality works with your partner in the beginning is not necessarily your most honest baseline with that person. Most arousing thing with sexuality is newness and novelty. And in the beginning, inherently, it's built in. But this is for people. Now, again, remember, there's different sexual orientations. There's people that are demisexual, where sexual energy will grow as the relationship grows. There's people that are frasexual, which means it's the opposite. The more they get to know someone and the closer they get, the more the sexuality will taper off. There's some people that are more solo sex, which means they're more about sex with themselves. But early on in a relationship, if there's so much excitement and newness and novelty that maybe they're more participatory or have more desire. But we really don't know until weeks or months in what you're more, more of a baseline. And again, that's about compatibility. And that's why it takes time, right? Uh, just like in the beginning, we maybe show up as our best. We let a lot of things go. And so even how we feel around each other in the beginning isn't necessarily your baseline. And that's why I wait down the road till some conflict arises, some hurdles and obstacles. And that's when you get a better sense of how do we as a couple manage difficult times, right? Uh, the newness uh, of early relationship and us, us trying to be our best is worn off. And now we're a little more honest. We're willing to take risks. But sex is the same way, right? Now that we're really 
reprioritizing our total life because in the beginning we maybe put our this new person first and we're canceling things and we're over prioritizing them but then that settles down and and everything falls in line and it's more of a uh, what would you call it like a horizontal you know line of preferences where everything's as important that's when we really get a better sense of sexuality and that's when some people withdraw or retreat you know the early newness and novelties worn off and they're putting a little more time and energy into other things that have taken a back seat and so people wonder what happened. Well, honesty, truth, time. But we can go through phases where it can double back, right? Uh, so I would say the first thing I say is when a couple comes in and they're talking about how their sex life is now, whatever now means, or how it was at the beginning, I say, those are phases. How it was in the beginning isn't what you should expect and that's not more honest or real and it's not something we're trying to get back to. And where we are now, wherever now is, a month in, a year in, five years in, this isn't any necessarily more honest. Although I think there's a little more honesty because you now better know what it's like in the true context of your life. But this is also a phase because everything feeds into everything, right? What kind of stresses are we talking about? How confident do we feel? What's going on in the world? What's going on within your family? What's going on within your individual life? All that factors in and matters. So the first thing I'm always reminding everyone is don't panic. Don't ever panic. Don't panic in the beginning. Don't panic in the middle. Because what we do know is that there is change to come and change can be created, right? So we know sexual satisfaction, right? Sexual happiness, if we're talking about monogamous couples, is crucial for happy marriage, right? Research shows that more sex doesn't necessarily lead to greater satisfaction and vice versa though. Not everyone is going to put so much reliance upon sexual satisfaction as determining their happiness. Because again, some people have more of a sexual solo sexuality. Some people have um, a lower sex drive period. Some people, the more they get to know someone, their sexual interest tapers off. And all these people can still be very present in a healthy relationship. Some people come to realize they're asexual. And this is, a, and I know the, all these words are so complicating, but it is that complicated. It's not as simple as we all have a sex drive. It should be there at all times. And if not, something's wrong. It's not, that's not being honest to the individual, right? Research also shows, and this is for heterosexual couples, so is this applicable to others? Not necessarily. Research on older heterosexual couples found that men desired greater sexual frequency more than men. Now that's changing. That's historical because women now are more sexually assertive and more sexually empowered, and they're more willing to ask for the kind of sex they want. And so women are not staying as quiet, and they are asserting themselves. Um, so again, we want to hold it lightly, but we do want to understand that it's an important bridge for intimacy, closeness, and connection. So I'm glad that people do want to bring it up, talk about it, figure out some solutions, right? And also can bring some joy into your day. And also we live in a world that understandably you're going to encounter sexuality. And so people are going to want to come home and have access to that with their partner. We get aroused throughout the day. Um, it's a part of our system, right? It's a part of our system. It's a part of our natural drive. But when I'm working with a couple on this issue, I'm always curious, where, where's the vision, right, upon, uh, that they're holding themselves accountable to and maybe feeling let down or disappointed by? Where are you getting that vision that you're saying is what should be happening and we're here because it's not? Again, is that because of how it was in the beginning, which I've already called out isn't the best indicator? Is it because you've read an article or you're aware of what your friends are doing or what you think people are doing? Because every couple has to really work with what's possible based on who they are. It's very individualized. And that's why when people ask me questions like how often should a couple be having sex, I don't answer that. It's so individual and it's contextualized. What's going on in, in the lives of these people you're asking me this question about, right? Because all that matters. It's not just a single answer for everyone. 
Uh, when we come back, we're going to keep talking about that and also some things you can do. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about sexual desire and how it can drop off in couples and relationships. And there's no right answer for everyone in terms of frequency. It's individualized. It's also within the couple themselves and who they are and what they need, right? It's really important to remember that. Whatever we're talking about, every couple is going to be different. And we can't look to our friends or couples on television or necessarily even some of the articles we read to determine what's going to be right for a couple. It has to be really specific to them. And sex will waver based on what's going on in our lives, right? And as we talked about, everyone has a different sexual orientation or sexual orientation is more than just the gender choice. It's also about what kind of sex you like to have, how often you like to have it, what kind you like to have when you're having it. Um, do you prefer it with your partner or more about sex with yourself? Um, is it something that grows as you get deeper into a relationship or something that kind of weakens and lessens? Because not everyone, you know, does the you know uh, quantity increase? Uh, and also, what is it used for? Is it something that someone uses to connect? Is it something that they use for joy and pleasure? Is it something they use for self-care? Like all these different pieces factor in. So what I always tell people is whatever's going on with your sex life now, don't panic because it's going to ebb and flow and it's going to change. But it's okay and we want to vocalize when we feel as though our sex life isn't exactly where we want it to be. And that's what we talk about a multiple set of tools. First thing is, is the sex you're having even worth wanting? Because sometimes it's part of why someone or both partners or all partners back off of sex is because it's just not even good. And that might be the problem. And is it that we're not challenging ourselves? Is it that we're not speaking up and asking for the sex we really enjoy? Because a lot of couples do mind reading where they think, oh, our partner knows what I like. No, it's okay to ask for what you want, even outside of sex. It's okay to ask for what you want. I'm sorry, it's okay to ask for what you want and to have it given to you and to still find value in it. It's okay to say to someone, you know, it would mean a lot if we could celebrate and do more for my birthday. It would mean a lot if we could actually do more and make more meaning out of Valentine's Day. And then when that's given to you, say thank you. We can't, we can't ask for something and then we get it, say that wasn't what I meant or that's not right, right? So we want to be very open to receiving what we're asking for, but we have to ask for it too, bringing that compassion as well. So again, is this sex even worth having? Because that's sometimes why couples aren't having it. And is that born out of our anxiety of saying, hey, what we've been doing is not really what's most arousing or interesting to me? We need to speak up, right? Then we also want to check in on our partner. What's going on in their life? How's their body esteem? How's their self-esteem? Is there any issues at work? Any mental, health any mental health struggles? Anxiety, depression? That's absolutely going to be a powerful reason for someone being pulled away from or not interested in sexuality or even intimacy. What's the quality of our relationship? Are we getting along? Because that could be a really far distance to try to bridge if you're feeling really dis disconnected and far. For some couples, they can just go right to sex as a way to get close again, but some other couples need to first reconnect on that friendship level, but not always. And so maybe consider, we don't need to be doing great to still be having sex. Maybe us having sex will help us get over some of our feelings that we're unable to resolve, make us let go or forget or not care as much, right? Could be either or. So we always wanna check in on that though, right? Because we've talked about how the older we get, Hopefully our sexual prime is what we move into because we're more honest, we're more expressive, we're more confident, we're willing to have difficult conversations. And some couples also have to talk about, do we even want monogamy? Is that even right for us at this point, years in? Can we expect to have the same energy from this person that I know so well and I've been with and I've been having so much consistent sex with? Is it time for us to open, bring someone in? Or again, do the yes, no, maybe list. 
where we each really sit down. Only in healthy, trusting relationships can we do this. Only in sex-positive, healthy, trusting relationships can we do this, where we sit down and we talk about all the things we fantasize about. And is our partner interested or willing to try some of these things? Yes, no, maybe. Yes, I'm in. No, that doesn't work for me at all. Or maybe, but I want to make some changes. We can literally write it down, exchange them. We can sit there and have a beautiful, vulnerable moment where we just express and talk about. It's also something I give as an assignment to some of the couples, and we do that together as couples or sex therapy in my office. It's really about you also learning about yourself because you're documenting, like, who am I? What are the things that turn me on? As I move through the world, what grabs my attention? When I'm fantasizing, what am I thinking about? When I'm watching porn, what, am I, what, am I, what is it I like to watch the most? And that helps really bring out our true sexual self. But a lot of us have never been in a safe relationship or have felt confident enough to be able to express that or talk about that with another person right? So we want our partner to be able to kind of create that kind of relationship. It's really important to be able to do that, right? Because if not with your marital or relational romantic partner, then, then who? And if only with your friends or with yourself, why? Why can't you bring that up? If this is your sex partner, they're the, they are absolutely one of those people that needs to be told these things and aware of these things. It's a gift you give yourself and you give them. It's a, it's a journey, but that's part of the commitment you make when you get married or you get into some kind of exclusive monogamous relationship is you have to be willing to say, I'm on this journey where I'll talk about who I am and what I need. We're in this coupledom where we're going to talk about the ebbs and flows and the changes and what we needed then and what we need now. But don't panic. This is how we grow and transform. And I see a lot of people going to their friends to talk about it, reading articles, just bring it to their therapist, and all that could be a starting point. But at some point, you do have to go back to your partner and say, listen, we need to talk, or I need to let you know who I really am. I haven't been fully honest with who I am sexually or what I'm interested in or what hasn't been working, or I don't feel safe having sex with you, right? Like we haven't been getting along. And also we have to look at ourselves. How do we feel confident in ourselves, in our body, in our sexuality? Because we have to present ourselves. Is there work for us to do on ourselves that maybe has nothing to do with our partner? It's our relationship to ourself. Or maybe it's even the way our partner's talking about us, our body, our sexuality, and we have to discuss that. All those things, it's a huge, huge, sensitive, fragile constellation. People, again, just reduce it down to, oh, I'm gay or straight, and if you're the gen right gender, well, then all should be fine, and it's just not true. We also have these expectations of our body that aren't honest with what can be expected or what can be expected based on our mental health, or what can be expected based on our age or our abilities or the context of our life. So the biggest landing point is we have to have more transparency and vulnerability around it with ourselves first and then with our partner. And also then we have these collateral things. Like if you're a higher sex partner or you're into things your partner isn't, that's why we have pornography. That's why we have solo sex. So you with yourself can explore and still have a sex life. And we keep our partner out of that. They get to weigh in, in in monogamous relationships on partners, whether with others or just with them, but our soul of sexuality is always for us, right? Uh, we're gonna come back, we'll talk more. And then of course, we'll be closing out the show with uh, some DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, yikes. COVID, man, Ugh, grief and loss, a lot of it happening around COVID, still happening. Every time I look at the news, I'm looking at the numbers increasing around us. Uh, California has not had an increase, but a lot of other places are, and so grief and loss is something that, sadly, a lot of people are still having to encounter. And just to normalize for a second, it's not, you know, grief and loss isn't always about the actual passing or death of someone. It could be someone leaving, right? It could be a breakup. 
It could be loss of employment or housing. So many different things that can lead to grief and loss. And COVID's kind of bringing it into a lot of people's lives. Loss of their social life, loss of access to education. I had a friend who entered a program right at the beginning and most of his entire schooling was online, missed out on having campus life, meeting people. So there's grief and loss in all these things. Grief and loss of the vision we had, the plan we had, um, what we knew to be true, the, the grief and loss around the loss of trust or the breaking of trust based on how people are handling things and showing up to things. So it's, it's vast. It's really vast. And I don't want anyone to downplay or minimize grief and loss that they're going through. And we've talked about this on the show many, many times that we carry it with us. There's, there's when people say, oh, well, what are the, you know, easy ways or quick steps to getting over loss? It's like, well, you don't, it's about learning how to have it be a companion on your journey. Um, it doesn't just, it doesn't go away. It might become easier. It might become more manageable or maybe not, or maybe it will for a time. And then at another time it gets really brought up, triggered or amplified. So we're normalizing. And I think that that's really hard. I think a lot of people think that therapy is the resolution of something or to fix or to cure. Therapy doesn't fix or cure. Therapy is about getting more introspective, learning how to ask or find out what the symptoms might be a sign of, what what deeper, bigger, larger, more important changes might need to be made in our life or in perspectives. It's usually about going in, right? Sometimes there's coaching elements, ways to kind of better manage, but it's not about fixing or curing. It's about learning how to be with often because a lot of mental health struggles are things that will be with us. You know, they're not always things that we can quickly get rid of or remove or even at all. So we want to just first be able to name it, right? I'm grieving something. I've had a loss and just kind of giving it, you know, when we label something, we, we give it shape, we give it form. It becomes manageable. We actually can sometimes see it outside of us. We push it out, right? Something we can look at. We don't always want to, you know, hide, minimize, distract, although those can be really healthy, healthy coping mechanisms at times, right? But you know, the other thing I'm always reminding people, especially during times right now, is community. And that's why I love that we have access to technology that we have, staying connected to others that are going through something similar. A lot of great Facebook pages, Instagram pages. There actually is social media. Um, uh, social media has become a little bit of a resource. There's scholarship. Social media scholarship is happening where people are really trying to kind of put their work on social media so it's free and accessible to a lot of people. But everyone's path is going to be different, and community is a really good way to normalize, you know. And that's why it's always recommended, to, regardless of what we're around, uh, regardless of what we're talking about, I should say. Um, sorry, I was reading ahead. Um, also, just letting letting your honest, natural experience of something arise. We can sometimes feel bad. We can shame, say it shouldn't be, but it is, and we want to really show up to what is, right? And so we're not necessarily having regret. We're, we're not trying to, we're not trying to amplify. Often something will happen. And instead of just feeling the primary experience of something, right? Whatever that may be, we amplify or complicate it by feeling bad that we feel bad, right? We don't want to do that. That's gripping really hard. That's holding on too tight. It's not just being with and letting go. And that's often what the work is, letting go and letting it be. And just letting it be that one emotional experience, that one primary experience, not complicating it. What will people say? What will people think? I'm not a good mother. We're moving away from all of that and saying, well, this is what is. This is how it is. And that's also part of how we move into that compassion that we need to bring in. Because I think that's a really important part of it. 
being compassionate with ourselves. And that's also part of not complicating or amplifying, right? Because that, again, goes back to it shouldn't be. It should be other than. And also at some point down the road, we maybe even find some gifts, some resilience in there, right? Growth. Not something we often can really see or connect to on the front end, but at some point we can sometimes see the transformation and growth that it offers and affords us. And there's some beauty in that. And that can be really hard for us to find value in grief or loss, right? We feel as though we're dishonoring what has happened, who was lost or what was lost, but that can be in there. It can bring us into a new space that could be great or better, you know? But that's a really hard thing for people to really sit with. And that's not a silver lining. That's not toxic positivity. It's just about holding space. I was saying that early on in COVID as well about how we're honoring all that's gone on and that's hard and difficult, but we can also allow the ability to find some joy, some peace, some rest, some pleasure, right? In fact, I'm wanting people to try to kind of create space for that to emerge. And also knowing that there's not a natural trajectory. We don't know what the time frame is. It's often with us forever. The process is also often learning to live with the loss. Uh, the pain doesn't have to be as powerful or as sharp and joy emerges, but it never necessarily goes away. And I think that's one of the hardest things to communicate to people, right? Because we want it just to stop. But that gripping and forcing is often what creates further problems and amplifies. We'll keep talking about this. Um, coming up next, we're going to slide into those DMs just into Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, my daughter, Tiara, has been experiencing a lot of anxiety lately. She's only 11, but she'll say things like, I don't want you and dad to go to the store in case you get into an accident and leave me alone. Very doomish kind of things. Her TV time is limited and she doesn't have a phone. So I asked if she was seeing anything that was scaring her and she said no. I'm not sure how to address the anxiety because she's so young and I'm not entirely sure where these ideas are coming from. Um, I don't work with child psychology uh, at all. Uh, I would take her to a child therapist because at 11, if, how would you say, how old, I missed that part. Sorry, I closed before I could see how old she was. Let's go back and look. 11, yes. Um, take her to a therapist. 11's way too young to be having an anxiety disorder like that, which is what it's kind of sounding like. And that can start to have a bigger impact on her mood. It can lead to some depression, all sorts of things. So that's kind of a little bit of a red flag. It's a little young to be thinking in those terms, especially if it's not something she's seeing in film or television or even in her own life. So I would, I'd book a session for a child therapist, 100%. Get that dealt with now. She can learn some resources, some coping skills, some thought stopping, some reality testing. I just don't want to put that on you to do that because these are big concepts. So book a child therapist appointment. All right, we got another one. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I don't know what to do. I think my husband has been going out, not cheating, but I think he's been partying and doing drugs and drinking too much. He's often with his brothers and friends, but the other day I asked for his credit card and when he gave me his wallet, there were drugs in it. How do I confront him? I don't like the word confront, we talk. So the question is, how do I talk to him lovingly and calmly? We don't confront people. That sounds aggressive. Confront confrontation sounds like I already know what's going on. You don't know anything, right? And you want to approach it from a place of curiosity and care and compassion because you want to understand what's going on. Because remember, he might be using drugs and that's okay. Adults sometimes use drugs. 
uh, 80% of people-ish, 75 to 80% of people that use drugs don't have an addiction, right? Drugs are a fact of life. They're becoming legalized in most states. You just want to understand why maybe he's keeping it from you because that's really the issue and is he using it in a healthy way? It doesn't sound like it's had any negative impact at all. So it sounds like it's very controlled and it's adult drug use. Um, if your only sign of the possibility of him using drugs is finding something in his wallet, right? But you have to approach him in a safe way. Otherwise, people won't share. People don't open up to people that aren't safe to be opened up to. So if you're judgmental and you're punishing and you're not safe for him to share honestly with you, then he's not going to and he'll lie. But if you're calm and you say, listen, tell me what's going on. And he tells you, you have to say, okay. And you can share with him, hey, that makes me anxious or I'm happy to know that it was someone else's drugs or you know, I didn't realize that you were an occasional drug user. Can you tell me more? But he's an adult. You know, That's up to him. Um, but yeah, you, when we find things like that, understandably, we need to bring it up. It's really hard to just, you know, ignore something like that. Uh, but you have to approach it calmly and again, without judgment to get clarity and to offer compassion and to get some more understanding. And that's it. Um, because again, people are allowed in relationships of whatever kind to have boundaries and privacy. Um, but you stumbled upon something. And it's very reasonable that it's something that maybe is triggering for you. I don't know your experience with drugs and alcohol or your experience of him with drugs and alcohol, right? But understandably, it can be a little surprising or shocking when we find out that someone is not exactly who we thought they were. And I don't mean that he's not who you thought he was. That's another example. But this is an example of when you find out parts of someone, right, or activities of someone or coping mechanisms or ways that they like to socialize. And a real person steps forward. And so you have to just get clarity. But I get nervous around these topics because people usually already take a right or wrong perspective. It's not about right or wrong. It's about you found out information that you did not know before. And when he tells you what's going on, your answer is to just share your thoughts and feelings and you process it and talk about what role you want it to be in your life, right? Um, all right, y'all, that is our show. We'll be back tomorrow. It's going to be a good one, so stick around and join us. We're going to be doing a little couples therapy, uh, but also talking about the ever, ever-growing important topic of healthy phone use. Oh, that's right, because it's getting in the way of a lot of different relationships, especially marriages and romantic relationships. So we're going to be talking about tips and tricks to better manage phone use and the frustration around trying to connect with people that always have their fed bur uh, head buried in their phone. Question of the night. We're not doing that anymore, but DMs, they are open, so drop them in our Loveland IG page. Any question you have, we're here to answer it. As always, y'all, thanks for hanging out, and we will see you tomorrow night.